Welcome back to the Within Ourselves podcast. Today I'm here with Celia Erickson and she is a wine director and sommelier. So thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. If you want to just take some time to introduce yourself for those that don't know you. Sure. Yeah. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a, the wine director for restaurant group in New York City called Delicious Hospitality Group. Um, I've been a sommelier for over 10 years now, which is scary to say time flies, but um, I've uh, spent most of my career in in New York City, um, but uh, originally from Atlanta and sort of started in hospitality there. Um, but I'm happy to be uh, sharing a little bit of my story with you. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about the wine industry, you know, what you do and your journey. I've been kind of getting more into wine recently. Natalie's been kind of showing me the ropes a little bit. There's a place called Dose near us and they have a pretty good wine selection. So yeah, yeah, I know she keeps sending me pictures and I keep uh, playing dial a and giving her recommendations, which is always fun. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel, you know, being a sommelier is such a unique career. And so how did you get into this? You know, was there a moment or experience that really kind of sparked your interest in the wine industry? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a in a restaurant focused household. Both my parents are chefs, um, and they told me from a very young age I become anything in the world but a chef. Um, so I chose the next closest thing. <laughs> but uh, I went to hospitality school at Cornell um, and was thinking about going into hotel operations and was sort of um, catering my course load towards that. But uh, my sophomore year, I ended up taking a wines course that they have. Um, and I was sitting in that class. And at that point, I really didn't drink. It was, you know, my parents would offer me a glass of wine at dinner and it just really didn't interest me. Um, but sitting in that classroom, sort of learning about how culture and history and food and wine all came together, sort of sparked uh, the interest within me. And I was like, oh, actually, this is really cool. Um, so I started taking as many classes as possible and doing as many sort of wine related things that I could. Um and then uh, when I graduated from Cornell, I ended up doing a uh, wine program uh, out in Napa Valley. So nine months in Napa Valley uh, studying wine was an incredible experience. Uh, a lot of studying, but um, really, really fun. So I went from there um, and uh, really had some great mentors and developed some great friends during that program. And you covered everything from wines of Italy to wines of France to beer to tea to sake um, and that was such a really awesome deep dive um, into the into the world of beverage and gave me a really good foundation um, for launching my career Um, and then when I left that I was talking to some mentors and I was like you know where where would you start your career if you were sort of beginning Um, and they said why don't you go work at work in a restaurant in New York City Um, So I started at 11 Madison Park, um, which is at the time was one of the best restaurants in the world. Um, I didn't get to touch a bottle of wine while I was there. Um, (laughs) And so uh, I started there and then got to um, learn how to serve and pour water and was really focused on um, the service aspect of that and spent a year really sort of learning service and hospitality um, but really missed wine. And I realized that, you know, I wasn't going to get on the SOM team there just because it was a restaurant of such high caliber. You really needed to have um, the focus. 
um, on wine before before really getting to to work on wine service there. So from there, I worked for a uh, wine auction house in the city, which is a totally different, strange world where people are trading wine based on its value and maybe not even drinking it, but using it as an investment, which is sort of fascinating and a very different chapter of that. Um, and then ended up getting my first sommelier job in the city at a restaurant called Maialino, which is run by Danny Meyer um, and Eaton Square Hospitality Group. So a really famous restaurateur. Um, and I didn't know anything about Italian wine when I started. I was so nervous. I went home every day thinking I was going to get fired. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, really hit the books and studied a lot and had some great um, great teachers and fellow sommeliers there um, and then sort of progressed my career through that route. Um, but I would say sort of the career started with just an interest and a passion and sort of that click of being, hey, there's so many different facets to wine. It's not just an alcoholic beverage. There's there's so much history and culture um, and so many sort of civilizations grew around wine. Um, you know, it was one of the original beverages when water wasn't safe to drink. Um, and so it just sort of weaves in and out of history in really cool ways. Yeah, that's so interesting that you, you know, never really drank wine before you kind of did yeah. this like, deep dive into the history and the culture yeah. behind it and everything. That's really, really cool. Um, and so was there any types of you know, certifications or training that you had to go through? What was this process like? Yeah, so people sort of, there are very different approaches to becoming a sommelier. Some people go the more formal route of education, sort of like I do and did, and some other people just sort of dive in and um, sort of just get interested while working in restaurants. Um, but for me, um, so the wine program that I did in California through the Culinary Institute of America um, sort of prepared you at the time to take uh, the first two exams through the Court of Master Sommeliers. Um, there are two big educational sort of groups. There's um, Wine and Spirits Education Trust and the Court of Master Sommeliers. And those are sort of the two big accreditations um, for wine right now. Um, both have their merits, both have their um, issues as well. Um, right. But uh, I studied and took um, the first two exams for that. Um, and then I spent several years trying to achieve my advanced sommelier um, accreditation, but it's a very difficult difficult exam. And uh, despite sitting for it three times, just couldn't get over that hurdle. But luckily, um, the nice thing about the wine industry is that you know the exams are great and sometimes they help you to get your foot in the door, but also sort of your work experience and your sort of um, your ability to work the floor of a restaurant are also great ways for you to move up to. So the certification isn't necessary. Um, it's a great tool for people who need the motivation to study and like a really structured sort of way to sort of feel like they can progress their careers. Um, but some people are also able to do so without that formal structure. Right. Yeah. It sounds like there's kind of a lot of different avenues you can take, but I think it's interesting, like you said too, you had to work kind of in a restaurant on the floor before really even touching a bottle of wine. So yeah, it sounds like it's, you know, a longer process than a lot of people would think. So, and I'm curious, you know, what do you do in your current role exactly? I know, do you still yeah. work in restaurants? Like, mm -hmm. what does that look like? Yeah, so um, your the your 
career and job description sort of changes as you move up in the ranks of a restaurant. Um, right now, I am on the corporate team uh, for a restaurant group. So a lot of my day is spent in front of a computer looking at Excel spreadsheets. Um, but um, so, but when I first started off, a lot of it was sort of getting up, doing some studying, going in, stocking the cellar, preparing the wine list, and then selling wine on the floor. For me now, it's a lot of sort of bigger picture things. I do the buying for four restaurants. So I spend a lot of time tasting new wines with distributors and um, sort of plotting and looking at financials, making sure that um, the team that I oversee, they're selling properly and they're meeting their sales goals. Um, sort of sourcing glassware is also a difficult task sometimes during COVID. Um, our, our glassware provider had a fire in their factory and it was sort of figuring out how do you get wine glasses made in Germany, ship them to Italy, import them to New York. Um, there's a lot of sort of finer details and bigger picture things um, that once you step into that director role, you're sort of uh, overseeing. But I still spend time in the restaurants. Typically, my day starts at the office around 10 a.m. And I'll work in the office until around 3. And then I typically stop by one of the restaurants from 3 until 8 or 9. Um, once service starts to die down. Gotcha. And what's the yeah. process like for choosing a wine list? You know, I know that there's like, you know, the idea that like, oh, white wines go with fish and chicken and red wines go with meat. You know, I'm sure it's way more complex than that. But what's that process like? Yeah, you know, I would say that um, there is always a little bit of a, um, push and pull an ethos behind a wine list. Um, and it depends on the restaurant that you're looking for and sort of um, your owner and their tastes and their preferences and um, also your own personal sort of um, thoughts and feelings. And so, um, you know, I would say for um, some restaurants, it's really important that they're just, they have a small selection and they're limited to what they can have. And so, sort of what you're bringing in for that may not necessarily always go with the food because you have to have a couple of different things for to fill certain requirements um and that's sort of the ethos of that for some restaurants it's all about having the biggest and best and having something that you know sort of like a trophy sort of show and so again like you're not necessarily always focusing on the pairings but it's you're trying to hit make sure that you know you're winning awards for your wine list or or something like that and then I would say for a lot of the restaurants that I've worked for it's a little bit of a um, focus on really making that culinary and wine program meld together but also having your own rules and so um, we I would say with with my group that it's like you know we're never going to have the soupy super oaky chardonnay because that's something that um, we uh, those of us running the programs feel like that's not something that we want on our wine list. We, there are some people who really enjoy those wines, but we prefer wines that have a little bit more balance. So we're never really going to have that super massive oak bomb Chardonnay that, um, but we are going to have some great Chardonnays that are super well-balanced and really speak to our ethos. Um, as far as pairings, you know, there are rules, but they're meant to be broken sometimes. Right. Um, so, you know, I've some of the best pairings that I've experienced have been ones that sort of bended um, with the 
the preconceived notion of what goes with what. Um, when you have the time and the creativity to just try things together, um, I'd say that's always fun and it gives a really fun experience. Um, so I would say, you know, sometimes Pinot Noir goes great with your salmon. Um, you just have to find the right expression of it. Maybe it's a little lighter, something that's got a little bit more earthiness. If you've got, you know, some earthy vegetables or lentils or something with that, you know, you, you can you can do a red wine. It doesn't, you don't have to find, always stick to exact rules. You can sort of bend them a bit. Right. Yeah, that's good to know. You can kind of bend the rules a little bit. Are there any other yeah. like common misconceptions or like myths about wine maybe in general or yeah that? <laughs> there's a lot of them out there um, yeah I would say some uh one of the biggest ones I find right now is talking about sulfites um a lot of people will say that sulfites give you headaches and that sort of thing and that's why some people can't drink red wine um while red wine and white wine both contain sulfites. Typically, a handful of dried fruit uh, has more sulfites than that glass of wine, um, which is kind of funny. So it's there's uh, sometimes it takes a little research to understand. While it may be something that someone says, that's not actually the truth. It's something that some people have globbed onto and decided that that's the the issue. But doing a little research and looking into the chemistry of it gets uh, sort of gets rid of some of those myths. When it comes to buying, you know, wine and tasting wine, what are some things that, you know, we should look for? I just went into like a wine bar um, in Charleston a few weeks back called Graft. I don't know if you heard of it, yeah. but that's my, um, my friend from wine school, actually. Okay. Yeah. Right, that one. Mm -hmm. That's who Natalie was talking about then. Yeah. We were going to go in and say hi and he wasn't there, but, you know, we walk in and they're like, oh, what do you like? Like, mm -hmm. like, uh. I don't really know. Like I like white wine, like kind of sweet, but not too sweet. Like I didn't know how to, you know, describe it really. And so, um, but yeah, what are some things that, you know, we should look for when, when buying wine, when tasting wine, maybe for someone that's kind of a novice like me. So, <laughs> yeah, I would say that always ask the person who's working there. That's the yeah. biggest tip I can give when talking about wine. Um, typically if it's, if it's a good store or a good restaurant, the person who's there to help sell knows what things taste like. So while you may not be familiar with grapes or producers or something like that, the person who's works in that establishment typically is always really good at sort of helping to guide that. Um, that's always my, my biggest, biggest recommendation. Um, I can't tell you how many times people order something and they think it's going to be a red wine when it's a white wine and it's like if we had just had this conversation it totally could have guided you into the right direction mm -hmm. um second thing is um when you're tasting the wine you know it, it you don't have to get into this tastes like a um, fresh rock from the alpine mountains of wherever it's really just sort of focusing on you know think about what kind of fruit it tastes like does it taste like apricots does it taste like um cherries does it taste like lemons um, and finding out what of those flavors you like can be kind of fun. Um, I'm a huge nerd and I really love going to farmer's markets and sort of like smelling the produce and smelling the flowers and tasting those and just thinking about flavor and what flavors you enjoy can really help you to describe that uh, to, to whoever's trying to sell you the wine and guide you in the right direction. Um, when I'm 
helping to guide someone, I have a couple of main questions that I typically ask. One is always, you know, first of all, basics. Do you want red, white, rosé, sparkling? Like basic categories. From there, do you like something that's a little more earthy or something that's a little more fruity? And sort of knowing which side you lean towards, you can lean towards both, but picking which one you are in the mood for that day can also help to move you in the right direction there. Um, typically wines that are a little earthier are from France and Italy and some of those more European countries. Um, wines that are a little fruitier are more from um, the United States and Argentina and Australia and some of those what we call new world regions. Um, so really just something basic like that can really help to narrow down the scope and get you where you want to go. Yeah, that's all super interesting. It's just amazing to me, like how, you know, how many different directions you can go in, you know, there's so yeah. many different, you know, taste and yeah. And so I know like, um, natural wine, like organic wine is kind of a big thing. Is there a difference between the two? And if yeah. so, like, what are the differences? This sort of circles back to that preconcert um, preconceived notions uh, conversation that we ha were having earlier. Right. Um, natural wine, wine technically doesn't have a real definition. Um, there's no real regulations on what that means. Typically, what people are referring to when they're talking about natural wines are wines that have are, are have no sulfur. Typically, that's your your broad categorization of that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily always mean that. I think a lot of times people, when they think natural wines, think wines that are really funky, um, that are super hazy, super sort of like the orange wine category tends to fit in that. Um, but technically, there is no definition. Um, organic wines, there's some politics to that and some things where if someone's saying the grapes are organic versus the winemaking is organic, or both organic. The other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of times those organic certifications are really expensive. Um, so when you're talking about really small producers, they may be practicing organic farming methods, but they maybe can't afford that certification process. Or, um, you know, I would say there's even producers that go above and beyond organics into what we call biodynamics. So they're farming in accordance with the moon cycles and they're doing incredibly natural sort of um, fertilizers and things like that in the vineyards. And sometimes some of those um, techniques actually exclude them from organic certification. So even someone who's going above and beyond won't have that on the label. Um, so I would say those categories, while they're great and they, they can sometimes help people to make sure that they're getting a really like small producer who's doing the right things, um, sometimes also exclude people who are so small or doing such great practices that they can't fall within those. So it's one of those things where um, sometimes you have to either do the research yourself or ask again whoever's done the wine selecting to really understand what is actually happening in your wine um, to get the real idea of what's going on there. Right. Yeah. I've been kind of into orange wine recently too. And I know that like you were saying, it kind of falls more into like the natural wine category. But yeah. That's also so interesting, you know, and there's like, what are some of your thoughts on like sustainable organic winemaking? And you, know, you kind of talked about it and 
how does this impact like the wine industry in general and consumer choices? Yeah. So, um, I went on a trip to Champagne this, um, this spring and I don't, I, it would, I have never been so amazed by the stark differences between producers that are using organic biodynamic, really sustainable farming practices versus those who are not. Um, the Champagne region of France um, at one point was used basically as a dumpster for all of Paris. Um, they used to throw all of their garbage there and let it move into the soil, which uh, they realized later on was a terrible idea. Um, so it actually um, sort of ruined this region. Um, but small producers in Champagne um, started changing their practices and really trying to clean up the region um, and um, really make a difference in the soils and how the whole earth there was taken care of. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, well, you can still see when you're driving down the highway, little bits of, bits of like plastic and things like that. Um, what's amazing is to see the stark differences. If you're looking at, there's a plot of land, there's an acre of vines and say two producers work that acre of vines. One is using organics and biodynamics. One is not the one that's not the soil looks like moon, like it looks like the surface of the moon. It is, hmm. there's a lot of chalk in the soil. So there's these little bits of chalk. There's also like these bits of plastic and things like that in there um, due to the previous issues with the garbage disposal. But then you look at the producer right next to them, they have wildflowers growing, grasses, all of this, it's green and lush and beautiful. So it's really incredible to see such a difference between someone who is spraying pesticides and really not taking care of things versus someone who is. Um, I think it was such a fascinating thing because I've, while I've seen vineyards that were farmed differently, I've never seen a contrast that big between, um, between rows. Yeah, that sounds so like such a stark difference between the two. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. It was funny. We were there on Earth Day. And I was like, this is perfect because <laughs> yeah, it's, it's was really, it was, I think, um, a really pivotal thing for, I think, me to see just to know, you know, and it's, it's exciting to see that these small producers are really caring and you're seeing that all over, um, all over the world where, um, you know, I think small producers are really starting to take notice and really realize that what they're doing makes a huge difference and it changes the wine and how it tastes too. Um, you know, when you have someone who's taking care of just like vegetables, when you eat them from a garden that is really taken care of with um, so much care without pesticides, without all this, that vegetable tastes so much better um, when you pick it up from a farm stand versus when you pick it up from a conventional grocery store. Yeah, exactly. And what are some emerging trends that you're seeing in the wine industry? You know, I'm sure, you know, the sustainable farming or not, yeah, sustainable, you know, winemaking mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is impacting consumer choices too. And so what are some of the emerging trends that you see? Yeah, um, I would say there's, there's a lot of really fun things happening. Um, one I would say is seeing a change in consumer taste and consumer want. 
I think people really, just like we talked about, really want to know where the warning is coming from. I think that might be sort of why the uh, blanket natural wine movement has gained so much traction is because while people may not know the exact definition of what they're asking for, what they're trying to ask for is something that is made in the right way. And I think that's super exciting. And I would say younger generations are also really excited to try. Um, I would, you know, it's not always about Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay, Pinot Noir um, and Sauvignon Blanc. I would say, you know, younger drinkers are really excited to try, you know, a little Vermentino from Italy or a Rinto from, um, from Portugal. Uh, there's a lot of curiosity which makes my job really exciting and fun um, to really also always be searching for something new and something different that tastes delicious and to bring that story to whoever's buying it. Yeah. And so you kind of mentioned it just now, but what is your favorite part of your job? You know, it's such a unique job. So yeah. What do you enjoy the most about it? Depends on the day. <laughs> I would say, um, I think I really enjoy the education aspect of it. Um, that sort of is where my heart lies within wine, sort of telling that story, sharing, you know, being the mediator between the winemaker and the bottle and the person who's consuming it, I think is so fun um, playing the role of a storyteller. And, um, you know, when you have someone at the table who is, you know, really, again, might not know everything, um, but you can sort of guide them in their direction. You open up that bottle of wine, you pour it for them. They go, oh my goodness, this is delicious. Right. Um, that's so fun. It's so rewarding because you can, it's one of those jobs where you get to actually see um, the result of, of what your job is and to sort of see the satisfaction and the excitement of the person who's a part of it. Right. And I'm sure like, you know, I feel like wine can like bring people together and like, you know, mm -hmm. promote community and you know, it's kind of what I'm trying to do with like my podcast too, you know, the within ourselves podcast is share people's stories. And, you know, I feel like wine can have that effect on people for sure. So that does sound very rewarding. <laughs> Definitely. And so I'm assuming you drink wine now. <laughs> I do. <laughs> More so. <laughs> and so what are like your top three wines that you would say or you know you must try yeah um I would say for for me it always changes based on the day for I'm always very much based on my mood or what I'm drinking or where I am um I love a bottle of champagne that's typically uh really uh high on my category of wines mm -hmm. um I think the bubbles are delicious and champagne's not always just for celebration uh, I think it's really nice to enjoy a great bottle on a Tuesday, you know, on a day off for me, but um, I would say there's some really great small producers in that region that I got to meet when I was on this trip um, that I just got so excited about. And so, um, you know, they're sometimes a little harder to find, but, um, you know, stepping outside of the big champagne houses and looking at the little guy who's making a couple cases, uh, as mm -hmm. opposed to something like Moet and Chenton, while those wines are great and they're consistent, um, I think really supporting the small growers in that region is always really fun. Um, I'm also a huge Italian wine fanatic. Uh, I eventually learned about Italian wine when I was at Maialino and stopped thinking that I was getting fired every day. And uh, <laughs> I found some really fabulous producers there. 
um, some of whom have become really good friends. Um, I love the wines from uh, uh, GD Vira. Giuseppe has been a big supporter of my career. And so I'm all, you'll always see those wines around on my wine lists and I'd like to drink those at home. Um, and then I would say, you know, I also love a good, good bottle of rosé in the summertime. It doesn't have to be, you know, a $105 bottle. I love, you know, you'll see me picking up some $25 bottles of rosé uh, to get through my summer um, just because it's delicious and enjoyable. Right. And I know you've talked a lot about all the experiences that you've had, but is there one, you know, moment or experience that you've had um, in relation to like your journey as a sommelier so far that really sticks out to you? There have been so many. It's sort of hard to pick. I would say yeah, um, sure. <laughs> for one of, I think the most important times for me as a SOM was just when I was getting started. Um, when I was in wine school in California, I met these incredible friends uh, who sort of uh, helped me with my career and we still continue to keep in touch and, and help each other out. Um, and so finding those friendships and mentorships were really pivotal for me. Um, working in the restaurant industry is really hard. Um, you work nights, weekends, holidays. Um, you see your work colleagues a lot more than you see your family. Um, so I found um, those friendships that I developed when I was in school. There were a couple of us that all moved to New York City together and really sort of started working in restaurants together so it was finding that group that you know you could call up and be like I just had a really hard day mm -hmm. um and and being able to share that experience and have some people to sort of count on and rely on and and sort of to ask for guidance too um you know and saying am I, am I crazy here do I need is this am I complaining a lot do I need to leave this job do I, is it time for me to move on or who do you know that's looking for this and um and so I think that that um, developing those friendships and really having that support network was was really pivotal for me. Yeah, and I'm sure that's super important when you're first starting out, like making those connections. And mm -hmm. so in addition to that, like what other advice would you give to those that, you know, maybe want to pursue a career in the wine industry? Yeah, um, I would say... Uh, in addition to finding mentors and peers, uh, another really big thing um, is, uh, I would say, figuring out how to work service in a restaurant, you know, getting a restaurant job, making sure that you're okay, making those sacrifices of the hours you're going to work. The role of a sommelier isn't just stocking bottles and selling them at the table. A really good sommelier can step into any role in service in the restaurant, whether it's polishing glasses, bussing a table, taking an order stepping behind the bar to make a couple of drinks. Um, that really strong foundation in service will help you to move and progress in your career. Um, right now I'm, I'm out in uh, Greenport, uh, Long Island, opening up a hotel property. Um, and while my title is wine director right now, mm -hmm. I am doing everything from opening boxes of, um, you know, um, metro shelves and organizing our plateware and making sure that we have a proper sanitation station. Um, and the company relies on me for that as well. Um, so in order to move up and progress into, um, and to, to continue your career, having an understanding for the whole 
restaurant operation is really important. Right. Yeah. And I'd like to hear more about, you know, kind of the big endeavor that you're taking on right now. I know you <laughs> said it's been crazy. So if you can just talk like a little bit more about that and what that's been like. Yeah. So uh, my company um, started restoration on this hotel in Greenport a year ago. Um, and it was a property that sort of fell a little into decline. Um, it it's a motel with some beach bungalows on the on the property, and it was designed um, and became a Greenport staple with lots of families who would come every summer. Um, but you know the foundations were rotting and things were just weren't kept up very well. Um, so we've spent the past year really trying to restore it um, to its heyday from like the sixties and seventies um, and sort of keep that really cool flair, uh, but just bring it up to speed. Uh, so. Right now we have, um, we're operating with a little bit of limited service this year uh, and having, we have a clam shack and a bar and a snack bar. Um, and next year we'll be turning two of the spaces into full service restaurants. So it's it's a, it's a fun challenge. Um, it's interesting for the um, corporate team out here because we're so used to being in New York City. So um, running through right. sand and, uh, <laughs> But looking at the water every day makes it really fun. Yeah, different change of pace for sure. Definitely. And would you recommend somebody going to New York City or are there other, you know, cities where, you know, it's kind of a, really other good spots to be? Or would you yeah. say, no, you got to go to New York? <laughs> well, it sort of depends. I would say my family, every time I go home, ask me when I'm moving back to Atlanta. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and while I love it there, there's a great wine scene. Um, New York as a whole has, uh, one of the best, um, there are wines that come into New York city that you're not going to get anywhere else. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a very unique market. Um, most winemakers, if they're making one stop in the United States, they go to New York. Um, it's, it's an incredible market because I think also there's so much, uh, there's a lot of money in New York city. Um, so there's the opportunity for you to sell bottles of wine that in other areas of the country don't get open very often. Um, that being said, I think COVID changed a lot of things. Um, I know a lot of friends, a lot of sommeliers who have left New York and they're moving to places like Michigan and moving you know, back to where they have family and really trying to develop the markets there, which is super exciting. You have places like uh, Charleston, which has such great food scene and there are people like my friend Miles there who are really doing a great job trying to educate people and have fun things um so I think that there's a lot of room for growth and change um and so I'm really excited to see sort of how the wine market expands and continues to change um because it's so much has happened in the last two years and we're already seeing some really cool results yeah, well, that is all so exciting, you know, with your new endeavor. And thank you again for taking time to be on the podcast. I love learning more about wine. And now I'm just feeling inspired to like, go over to Dose and like, look at all the wine <laughs> over there now. Yeah. All tonight. But yeah, this was this is so great. Yeah, it was so nice getting to chat with you. Is there yeah, anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up? Or? I would say just remember that wine isn't pretentious. It's supposed to be fun. Uh, enjoy it, ask questions, and uh, have a great glass of wine tonight. All right. Well, thank you, Celia. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it was a pleasure. Right. Yes, I will talk to you later. Thank you so much. All right. Sounds good.